0: Amen. Welcome this morning to Alberta Baptist Church. We're so glad you're here. My name is Pastor KJ, if you don't know me. And uh, if this is your first time with us, you came on a good Sunday because this is Name Amnesty Sunday, the first Sunday of each month. We have name, uh, what are these called? Stickers on? Name tags, thank you. Name tags on. So if there's someone's name that you've never gotten. Today's your day to get it. Um, we're very glad to have you with us here this morning. Uh, welcome those who are joining us by live stream as well. Uh, You will also see on your seats this morning a prayer guide and an envelope. We are beginning the countdown toward Easter, and every Easter at Southern Baptist, we take up the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, which goes toward missions in North America, church planting here in the United States and Canada, and we want to give generously to that. So we're preparing you for that with a, a prayer guide for this week be praying through every day of the week, something special in North America to lift up before the Lord. We're also in a special season of Lent as we move toward Easter, and during this time, we are going through uh, the Valley of Vision, which is this this little book right here. Uh, prayers that have been prayed hundreds of years ago, we are still praying them today. Uh, as we turn to the Lord, we're gonna we're gonna pray. Uh, Feel free, though, to have your eyes open and look at the screens. The words will be there, but this will be our prayer to the Lord this morning as we begin. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, you have brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths, but see you in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold your glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter your stars shine. Let me find your light in my darkness, your life in my death, your joy in my sorrow, your grace in my sin, your riches in my poverty, your glory in my valley. Amen.
1: The word of God through John chapter 11, 17 through 35. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on that last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept.
0: Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word and as we have this scene laid before us of sorrow, of mourning, of weeping, Lord, may we consider our own sorrow, but may we also see how Jesus has entered into it with us. Jesus has wept. He has been moved by what moves us. May we see that more clearly than we ever have before. May we see it this morning and may our hearts be changed by an encounter with a God who enters into our sorrows with us. We ask this in Jesus' name for his glory, amen. Where is God in our grief? Where is God in our sorrow? Many of you here today are grieving. Grieving the loss of a spouse, grieving the loss of a parent, grieving the loss of a child, grieving the loss of health, grieving the loss of something treasured, a marriage, a possession, something that you lost that perhaps you feel it's your fault. Grieving the loss of perhaps all your dear plans, all your ambitions for life put on hold. The sorrow in all these things is real, isn't it? It's real. The sorrow is real because the loss is real. In the death of a loved one, the fellowship we enjoyed really has been broken. It's been severed. The daily interactions that once filled our life are all gone. And you feel the loss. You feel the loss of it. Even in the things you enjoy, there is now a sense of sorrow because you would have enjoyed them with that person. And now you can't. What a beautiful sunset. But oh, how much my... Beloved, would have enjoyed that sunset with me. There's a pang of grief intermingled even with our pleasures. C.S. Lewis noticed this when he lost one of his close friends. He observed that in each of my friends, there is something that only another friend can fully bring out. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles-like joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. Lewis observed that our actual loss is often greater than we think when we lose a loved one. There are aspects of who we are that only certain people bring out of us. And these bits of who we are are also lost when we lose them. And that brings its own sort of grief and sorrow. I've lost them, yes, but I've also lost a part of myself. Where is God then in all such griefs? Where is God in our sorrows? I remember in my high school English class somewhere along the way, I was made to read the book Night by Ellie Weisel. Night is Weisel's story as a young Jewish boy of going through the Holocaust in a concentration camp. It's a short book, I've only ever read it once, but it contains some scenes that I've never forgotten, even after all these years. One of those scenes took place in a concentration camp where the Nazis hung a Jewish child, a boy, in front of the whole camp, all the other prisoners. And in their sorrow and grief, one of the prisoners asked, where is God? Where is God now? To which the response comes, he is here. He is hanging on the gallows. Now, there are two ways to interpret that, aren't there? There are two very different ways to understand that response. Either my encounter with sorrow renders God dead to me, my belief in God died with that child, or my encounter with sorrow has brought God nearer. To me. Where is God? He is there on the gallows with that dying child. Remember the old saying I quoted last Sunday the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. We saw that was true with suffering. The exact same suffering can drive one person away from God and drive another person toward God. The exact same experience of suffering. The same thing is true with sorrow. The same encounter with sorrow can drive one person away from God in despair and another towards God in hope. God being the only hope. Where is God in our grief? The Bible's answer is he is here. He is here. God has entered into our grief. In the person of Jesus, God steps into our sorrows. He himself bears our griefs. He personally experiences life in our wilderness. We're halfway through our special series on Lent, walking with Jesus in the wilderness. And you should know by now that the wilderness in the Scripture typically isn't the place where fun things happen it isn't the place of comfort it isn't the place of relaxing it is the place of testing the wilderness is full of the harder bits of life things like temptation and suffering and sorrow these three things these three bad things are pretty much universal aren't they To the human experience. Temptation. Everyone faces temptation. Suffering. Everyone will suffer sorrow. Everyone will experience sorrow. Everyone experiences these things. And you know what? Jesus has as well. Jesus has experienced them. Jesus has experienced temptation, suffering, and sorrow, I'd argue, to a greater degree than you ever have or ever will. Jesus already has done that. None of us will know the same level of temptation that Jesus experienced in the wilderness. In the wilderness, Jesus went without food (laughs) 40 days, 40 nights. He experienced hunger and then the devil coming to personally tempt us, tempt him. None of us will experience temptation like that. None of us can imagine the level of suffering Jesus went through. In the garden, sweating drops of blood. On the cross, the physical agony of the crucifixion compounded by the spiritual wrath of God being poured out upon him. None of us know the level of sorrow Jesus experienced because none of us have losses like Jesus. Think what Jesus lost He lost the fellowship he enjoyed with the Father from eternity past. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we consider sorrow today, we look to a God who has entered into our griefs with us and who has tasted more of it than we have ourselves. Jesus drank deeply from the bitter cup of sorrow more deeply than any of us ever will. Today, we get a glimpse of how Jesus deals with grief in John chapter 11 and the death of Lazarus. Let me quickly, let's recall the story, and then I wanna make eight applications from the story to our experience today. Here's what's happening in John chapter 11. In verse three, the word comes to Jesus. Lord, behold, he who you love is sick. Lazarus is deathly ill. But what does Jesus do? He delays, verse six. So when he heard that he was sick, he delayed two days longer where he was. After the delay, after a couple of days, Jesus tells his disciples, okay, it's time to go. But his disciples are all against it. Rabbi, the Jews down there in Jerusalem, they're all trying to kill you. Don't go. But Jesus says in verse 11, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and I must go to wake him up. But the disciples completely miss Jesus' meaning, don't they? And perhaps there's a little too much trust in the restorative power of sleep among the disciples. They say, Lord, if Lazarus is resting, he will recover. Then Jesus has to say, you guys, you're not getting it. He tells them point blank, Lazarus is dead in verse 14. Lazarus is dead and verse, verse 15. He says, I am glad for your sakes I was not there so that you may believe. Thomas then, Thomas gets a bad rap for his doubting after the resurrection, but here is Thomas at his best, his best moment, verse 16. Therefore, Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. As Jesus and his disciples are approaching, word comes to Mary and Martha. The same Mary and Martha who were entertaining Jesus at their home earlier, remember this scene, Martha's busy with all the entertainment things, uh, working, working. And Mary's just the opposite. She's sitting, sitting at Jesus' feet. Uh, there, there is one giving themselves to everyone else. There is one just entirely focused upon the Lord. And Mary has that costly gift of pouring out the perf- perfume on Jesus' feet. But what happens this time? This time, Mary stays at home with all the guests. And Martha goes to be with Jesus. We'll come back to that because this is not what you would expect. There's something to be said here. Martha then, as she comes to Jesus, has one of the most important exchanges with Jesus that anyone has had up to this point. Martha says in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus responds to her, your brother will rise again. Mary believes it. She believes that God will do it. She believes God will mend all the sorrows in the world. One day he will heal all the broken bits of the world. Resurrection is coming. She says, I believe it. But Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. More than in a future event, Your hope is a person. I am the resurrection and the life. And in a moment of profound grief and sorrow, Martha gives one of the best answers in the Bible. Jesus asks, do you believe this? And she says in verse 27, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. After this, Mary is sent for, but she doesn't come alone. Look at verse 31. It says, The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, when they saw Mary get up quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. These Jews are there to mourn with the family. And it's not just, I'm sorry for your loss type of mourning, it is a real weeping that they are doing. A, there are real tears being shed. They've come to grieve. With both Martha and Mary gone, all the mourners now come in mass to the tomb. And this is the scene that Jesus beholds, verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, shortest verse in the whole Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Jesus' heart is moved by the sorrow he sees. His eyes weep at all the misery and grief he sees around him. Jesus weeps before He does a miracle. That's important. Jesus weeps before he does wonders. Jesus says in verse 36, he calls them, remove the stone. Martha replies, it's not a good idea. By this time, it's been four days. There's going to be a stench here, Jesus. But Jesus insists. They roll the stone away. And Jesus prays aloud. Verse 42. He prays to the Father, I know, I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And after he prays this, the one who said in the beginning, Let there be light, now speaks these life giving words Lazarus, come forth. And the tomb opens, and the dead man rises. And a eucatastrophe happens. Eucatastrophe. You've been with me this long. You know what this word means, right? A catastrophe is a sudden unexpected turning of things for the bad. Eucatastrophe is the opposite. A sudden unexpected turning of things for the good. Every tear of grief is suddenly transformed into tears of joy. In one moment, one instant, in one moment, the world's natural law concerning death and decay has been broken. Not, not broken, but mended right. Mended back to the way it should be. Jesus mends and restores what was stolen in sorrow and grief. And as a result, many of the Jews believe, verse 45, many believe in him. But, verse 46 some of them went to the Pharisees and told them these things which Jesus had done. Remember, again, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. Beholding the same miracle brought forth two different responses in the hearts of those who saw it. For some, it was a turning towards God in faith. But for others, it was a turning towards Jesus' enemies, a hardening. Now, we've walked through the story. I want to make eight observations. Really, there are eight applications for us to take away from how Jesus encounters sorrow. So, if you're note takers, now's your time. This is your moment to shine. Here's eight things. Number one God doesn't intend a Christian sorrow to end in despair but to advance his glory. Observation number one, God doesn't intend a Christian sorrow to end in despair, but to advance his glory. Look again at verse four. When Jesus heard this news about Lazarus, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that God may be glorified by it. Lazarus' untimely death and his sister's sorrow over it weren't designed to end in despair, but in a display of God's glory. Jesus said a very similar thing about a man who was born blind. You remember this? Why was this man born blind? Why did this bad thing happen? Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? It's another example of the traditional wisdom we talked about last Sunday. Bad things happen. Why? Because you did something bad. Whose sin was it, Jesus? But Jesus says, it was neither this man's sin nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him that he was born blind. In both our sorrow and our suffering, we should have an eye to God's glory. Don't miss this, church. Don't waste your suffering or your sorrow. Sorrow and suffering aren't meant to be cul-de-sacs that dead end at despair and go no further. For the Christian, suffering is meant to be a conduit, leading us through sorrow, yes, but ultimately ending in God's glory and our good. This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God. We need faith to see that, don't we? We need faith to see these same words written over our every sickness and sorrow. That's observation, application number one. Number two, for Jesus to give us glory at the cost of some sorrow, is a loving exchange. Observation number two, for Jesus to give us glory at the cost of some sorrow is a loving exchange. Look at the connection between verses four and five. Verse four, Jesus says, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the son of God may be glorified by it. Verse five, now Jesus loved Mary, loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Jesus loved them. We might assume that the loving thing, Jesus loves somebody, the loving thing is to safeguard the ones you love from all sorrow. Jesus loves Mary. He loves Martha. He loves Lazarus. Therefore, he should want to keep all sorrow out of their lives, right? Jesus knows, and we all know, that the absence of sorrow is a good thing. It's good not to be sorrowful. The absence of sorrow is a good thing, but it is not the best thing. It is just a good thing by absence of a bad. It's like the absence of a toothache. It's good not to have a toothache, but toothless people can have that good thing because they don't have any teeth. What's better than the absence of something negative is the presence of something positive. Through sorrow, Jesus gives something better than a toothy grin. He gives a positive sense of God's glory. Jesus makes us participants in God's glory. He enriches our experience of God's glory forever by bringing us through times of sorrow now. I want to ask you this morning, how much sorrow would you gladly walk through if you knew a greater experience of God's glory was at the other end? Would you take a little dental pain now if it meant a perfect smile for all your life to come? Yes, you would. I've seen your smiles. I know that you have, (laughs) many of you have. If you take a little pain for a better smile now, wouldn't you take a little sorrow now for a brighter eternity to come? I think you would, right? I think you would. And I think you would recognize it as a loving exchange. Jesus loves us well by giving us something far greater forever in exchange for our temporary sorrow now. That's observation number two. Number three, Jesus can be glad while sorrowful. Jesus can be glad while sorrowful, and we can as well. Jesus can be glad while being sorrowful, and we can be as well. Look at verses 14 and 15. So, Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe Jesus knows real sorrow is happening right now. Lazarus is dead. There is mourning that is happening. He is mourning. He knows there is real sorrow. He knows real tears are coming. But at the same time, he says, I am glad. He is glad because sorrowful circumstances provide opportunities to build faith. I am glad for your sake I was not there that you might believe, that your faith might have an occasion to grow. Jesus can be glad while being sorrowful. And by faith, you can be that way as well. You know that? Just ask any Christian who has ever lost a loved one who believed in Jesus. When we lose someone who loves Jesus, There is a sorrow, a real sorrow at our loss, our loss, while at the same time there is a gladness fueled by faith at their gain. Faith that our loved one is rejoicing with Jesus right now. That makes us glad. We have a faith that God will reunite and restore that lost relationship one day, and it'll be better, 10,000 times better than it ever was in this life. We have a faith that believes God will prove himself to be enough while we wait for that day, for that reunion to come. As Christians, there is a complexity to our emotional life. Why? Because our faith calls us to believe in future realities that undo the sorrow, that undo the sting of sorrow in our present circumstances and call our hearts to rejoice. Paul says this, I am sorrowful yet always rejoicing. You can know that as well. Observation number four, sorrow often changes our natural responses. Sorrow often changes our natural responses. We see this in Mary and Martha. With a home full of people, who do we expect to stay and see to the guest? Martha, right? We expect Martha to stay. With the demands of a funeral reception, who do we expect to abandon them all and run to be with Jesus? Mary, right? We expect Mary to do that. But what happens when sorrow strikes? It turns out to be the exact opposite. Martha leaves everyone to find Jesus. Mary stays behind until Jesus calls for her. We find this with sorrow. For some people, it confuses their natural responses. They just don't know what to do or how to function any longer. The sorrow has that result. But for others, sorrow brings everything into its proper perspective. In her sorrow, Martha knew what she must do. She must go and find Jesus. She sees clearly what the best thing is and does exactly that thing. Mary, on the other hand, makes no move towards Jesus in her grief. The one who once abandoned everything else just to be with Jesus, poured out a fragrant aroma on his feet, now refuses to come until she is called for. But the good news for Mary and the good news for us is that when our sorrow confuses us and keeps us, From seeking Jesus, Jesus comes and seeks for us. The teacher is here, and he is calling for you in your sorrow. The same kindness that Jesus extends toward Mary, he extends toward you. Observation number five. God governs our sorrows. God governs our sorrows. Look at verse 21 and 22. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Martha's right, isn't she? She's right. Jesus could have spared her this sorrow. Jesus doesn't deny it. He knows it. And remember back to verse 6? Jesus intentionally delayed coming, he knew what would happen. This sorrow isn't random. Your sorrow hasn't come upon you by blind chance or by bad luck. It has been weighed out and sifted through the loving hands of a father. A father committed to your holiness. A father who means to redeem your suffering and your sorrows. Martha is right in what she says. You are right when you say God could have prevented this bad thing. He could have but instead he has given you an opportunity to trust him, to trust him with your pain, to trust him to work it out for his glory in the end. God governs our sorrows. Observation number five. Observation number six, God is deeply moved. By our sorrows. God governs our sorrows. God is deeply moved by our sorrows. Look at verse 33. When Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. And verse 35, Jesus wept. And again, verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, God is deeply moved by what moves us. Jesus is deeply moved by all the human misery that he sees around him. Why is that important? Why is that important for us to see? We need to know that God is not a stoic, completely unmoved by our plight and our pain. His heart isn't unengaged when our hearts are torn apart. His heart is actually more engaged than we can imagine. Lamentations 3, verse 33 says, God does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men. God does not afflict willingly, literally from his heart. This is against his heart. His heart is moved when we are afflicted, when we suffer when we go through times of sorrow. God is grieved by every heartbreaking situation. God's spirit is grieved by sin, the scripture says, by our sin. Do not grieve the spirit. God is more grieved than we are by what's going on in the world today. You may be grieved, God is more grieved, but he also knows how the story ends. He knows how blind Barometus' story ends. His blindness was for the glory of God. He knows how Lazarus' story ends. His illness and death were for his glory. That others might see that glory and taste it and have hearts won forever by that glory. God's heart is moved by what moves us, which is what makes this next observation So amazing. Observation number seven. Jesus weeps before he does wonders. Jesus weeps before he does wonders. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept, knowing full well what he was about to do. If you're here this morning doubting the truthfulness of the Bible... I wanna place this doubt into your mind. If we were making this up, this is not how we would tell the story. This is not how we would react in a similar situation. We'd be like, hold up, y'all. I know you're upset, but wait just one second. I'm about to turn it all on its head right here. I'm about to wipe every tear away in a moment. That's not what Jesus does. He knows exactly what he's going to do. He knows exactly what's going to happen. But he weeps before he does wonders. The hero in this story weeps. That's not the hero we would have invented. But it is God's heart. This is God's heart put on display to us. Christ's heart is fully engaged with the sorrow right before he turns it all on its head. This is far better than the story we would have written for ourselves. This is far better than the God we would have made up. Jesus weeps before he does wonders. Here's the eighth and last observation here and application. Number eight, the, the catastrophe of Lazarus is coming for us as well. The catastrophe of Lazarus is coming for us as well. Yes, I am gonna make you write it down if you're taking notes. Write the word catastrophe and just put an E-U in front of it. The catastrophe of Lazarus is coming for us. The catastrophe, the sudden unexpected turning for the good that we see in Lazarus' story is coming for us. As well. As a matter of fact, for many of us, it has come already. Jesus' calling of Lazarus out of the grave is a picture, a physical picture of what he is doing spiritually in every believer. The Bible says we were all, you were all, dead in our trespasses and sins. We were all spiritually dead before God, but a miracle has happened. Like with Lazarus, Jesus has called you by name. Come forth, KJ, come forth. Brandon, come forth. Gabe, come forth. And what happened? Our hearts awoke. A heart of stone started beating and became a heart of flesh, alive to God. The life of God has come to dwell in the soul of man. Jesus spoke and we awoke. He called and we came. Perhaps still bound by a lot of sin, like Lazarus from the tomb, all still bound up, still bound by a lot of human frailty, perhaps stinking a good bit still, but we're alive. We are alive. If you're a Christian here today, that miracle has already happened for you. Jesus called it the miracle of the new birth. You've been born once physically. You've got to be born again spiritually. You've got to come alive to God because you were once dead without this spiritual life, without a living faith in Christ, your sorrow will just be sorrow. And it will just beget more and more. But with the redemption of our souls comes also the redemption of our sorrows. Jesus will transform them all In the twinkling of an eye, every tear will be wiped away and our joy will be all the deeper for every sorrow we overcame through trusting in Jesus. This is the turning point this morning. This is the turning point in our series. From here, it's all worship and wonder as we look toward Easter. We're done with the temptation, the suffering, the the sorrow, this is the turning point in our series, but I wonder if it's also a turning point for you this morning. Maybe you've been wading deep in sorrow, maybe drowning in sorrow. Today, hear Christ's call to trust him with your sorrow. Trust the Savior whose heart is tender. And fully engaged in your grief. Maybe you've been walking through the wilderness of deep unbelief. Today, hear Christ's call to trust him. To give up on being your own savior. To give up making it your own way. And embrace him as being enough. All sufficient. He is enough for you. Jesus will prove himself enough if you will embrace him by faith today. Maybe you've been walking through some deep valleys, not of sorrow, but of sin, struggling with sin. Today, hear Christ's call to trust him, to lay down your self destructive desires, and hear his call to life I am the resurrection. And the life, he says. Wherever you find yourself this morning, and however much sorrow you carry, hear this call. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Come to the one whose burden is light and who can redeem your every sorrow. Where is God? In our grief. Where is God? in our sorrow. In Jesus, God has said, I am here. Trust me. Trust in me. I am here and I will walk with you through the wilderness of your sorrow and I will deliver you safely to the other side. Let's pray this morning. Father, we come, many of us, with hearts full of grief, with hearts full of sorrow. But we come recognizing this morning to one who has gone before us. He is a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. He himself has borne our sin and our sorrows away, he has transformed it. May every heart this morning embrace Christ as King as savior, as the one who carries our sin and sorrow upon himself. May we find redemption for our bodies. May we find redemption for our pain in the Lord Jesus. May we believe that your heart is fully engaged in our grief. May we believe this morning that you govern all things and are working it for your glory. All must work for good for us, including our sorrow. Lord, may you write this word upon our hearts and may we believe it by, moment by moment. Uh, when we're at our worst, when the pain is the hardest, may we return to a Christ who weeps at the graveside but who also does wonders. And may we see him do wonders in our life. May our hearts respond now as, as we, we, we give ourselves afresh to the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.